Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talks focuses on our education reporters making the grade. Our featured speaker is Beth Hawkins, a working journalist for more than 30 years, most recently as an education writer. Beth is a founding reporter at Minnesota's nonprofit public affairs news site, MinPost. Beth wrote Learning Curve an education news and analysis blog until late 2015. She is currently a national correspondent for The 74 Million, a nonprofit news site focused on education policy, where she is privileged to write about promising policies and practices in schools throughout the country. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on October 15, 2018. Good evening. It's great to see so many of you out here. So many people I haven't seen in a while. Um, this t-shirt, which says we are putting out a damn paper tomorrow, uh, is a tweet that was sent out by one of the editors of the Annapolis Capital Gazette um, one evening last June, about two hours after an angry man with a gun blasted into the newsroom and killed five of his staff. Uh, the education reporter there is a young woman by the name of Rachel Pasella. She um, crawled in between two filing cabinets when she realized what was happening. And wedged in between the two filing cabinets, she listened as um, the man shot her editor, who she'd been spending the afternoon working on a story with, and then listened as he reloaded his gun and thought to herself, boy, when he gets to me, it's gonna be point blank range because of the distance from the front of the filing cabinet to her. So the reason that this is an important story right now in 2018 is because none of the five journalists who were killed were targeted because of something they wrote. They weren't taken into an embassy and dismembered because they were particularly hard hitting of a state um, they were simply targeted for being journalists, and they were targeted because they were working in a setting where journalists work. They were working in a newsroom. They were enemies of the people, which, believe it or not, is something that lands in my inbox all the time and is a threat that has been leveled at plenty of my colleagues. So nothing could be further from the truth. They're not enemies of the people. They're linchpins of your democracy. They're members of your community. They're public servants. They were in that newsroom that day trying to make sure that that community got news about what was going on with its public agencies in its various corners. Um, especially in a place like the Capital Gazette, they're public servants. They toil for very little money in terrible conditions uh, in an industry that's in the throes of tremendous transition. And it's a profession I couldn't love more. 
when I was 11, my mother took me to see all the president's men. <laughs> and Nixon was the topic of much discussion in our house. So I had lots of context. We'd been watching the Watergate hearings for a long time. So I understood what was going on in the movie. Um, I loved every frame, and I particularly was enamored of the trade craft in it, which somehow intuitively made sense to me even as a child. Uh, I remember the scene vividly where Dustin Hoffman, who's playing Carl Bernstein, has finally gotten someone to talk, finally gotten a low-level White House staffer to talk, and in an effort to keep the stakes low so that she'll keep talking, he keeps drinking coffee, she keeps pouring him coffee, and he keeps drinking it, and then running into the bathroom and writing down everything she said. So I understood that if he wrote that stuff down in front of her, she would stop talking. Um, so I was bitten early and hard by the bug. The photos scrolling past behind me are of schools and other locations where I do my job now. They're just placeholders for things that I wanted to make sure to remember when I sat down to write later. They're from all over the country, and a few of them are from notable journalism loca locations. So, no one sets out to be an education reporter. That's the first thing you need to know. <laughs> uh, it's the shotgun wedding of beats, is how our professional association, the Education Writers Association, refers to it. Steve Brandt, who some of you will remember from the Star Tribune, when he was involuntarily placed onto the beat for the second time, described it as kissing his sister. Uh, I had an opportunity last winter to work with a very bright, very talented young journalist who midway through our joint assignment said to me, I'm just not interested in education, I want to report on social justice. So I've been doing this particular kind of writing for 20 years. And um, for the first 10 it was sleepy. It was indeed work that nobody wanted to do. Then about 10 years in, uh, there was a moment in this community where we had some data, we had some consensus about the sense of urgency, we had some understanding of exactly how many children were being left behind in our schools and, and a beginning of an understanding of how that happened. We had a school board that's well represented here, um, and we had a decent press corps. There were maybe a half a dozen people from our newspaper of record covering education in this state. There were other people at Minnesota Public Radio had two fine, fine education reporters, Tom Weber and Tim Post. Uh, the Pioneer Press also had a robust cadre of writers. The Pioneer Press in the 1990s, right before I started on this beat, had 260 journalists in its newsroom. Today there are 50. If you have watched school board meetings recently, <laughs> you will know that they are frequently reporter-free, which to me is shocking and a sign of um, all kinds of ills that will come down the pike at us unless we act. And by we, I mean all of you guys, not just me. Um, right now, I think we have three reporters covering districts that are responsible for more than 100,000 children. Think about that for a second. The average education writer is a 34-year-old white woman who makes $55,000 a year. 71% of us are, in fact, women. 22% of us are people of color. And 
that's way more diverse than the press corps as a whole. The press corps as a whole nationwide is 9% people of color, and the gender ratio is reversed. We're a field that's cleaving into vastly different directions. The legacy media, the Star Tribune, the Pioneer Press, the Capital Gazette, um, in this community, Minnesota Public Radio, are shrinking. And the model is broken and it's not coming back. Um, education increasingly, not here, but around the country, is being taken up by nonprofit news organizations that are either focused specifically on education or on hardcore public policy topics. There are plenty of states and cities where the daily newspaper now gets its education coverage from a standalone nonprofit. Uh, there are places in this country where from time to time there's no education reporter. Mississippi went for several years without one. Idaho for several years went without one. There are 400 of us. 100 of that number are editors. The other 300 counts freelancers, part-timers, people who cover five or six beats, like the Annapolis Capital Gazette education reporter. Just 17% of the 400 cover K-12 education on a full-time basis. That leaves a lot of the country completely uncovered. At the same time, education reporting is becoming much more complex than when I started. The reams of data mean that we need to be data literate. We need to understand very technical things that have to do with assessments and the reporting of data and how the policy interacts with the rules and how the rules interact with the elected officials, etc. It's become, in contrast to the fact that we put the youngest and the, our legacy media put the youngest and the greenest reporters on the beat, it's become one of the most complicated and technically difficult areas to cover. And we have extra layers of ethical considerations, particularly because we deal with your children and because we deal with children who are often in challenging circumstances. So the legacy media, I think it's probably, if you've been watching the bylines locally, not much of a surprise to anybody in this room that we have reporters here who've been on the job a few months covering our school system, or not covering it, as the case might be. Um, so this means, in Minneapolis, where we have almost 36,000 children, and a budget of $850 million, that big decisions are being made with very little sunshine in the room. Last year, Minneapolis Public Schools cut $33 million from its budget. The conversation was factually challenged, to put it mildly. No one fact-checked the board. Um, I watched from home as staff put forth facts and information, and as those facts and information evaporated into the ether, and with tremendous frustration as the discussion about those facts played out in social media. What you believe took place when that $33 million was cut after several really contentious board meetings uh, probably depends on which Facebook site you spend your days on. You probably are talking about this with people who are within your own filter bubble, who believe what you believe, and who reinforce one another's preconceptions. More recently, the district has been in the process of trying to redraw the attendance zones and the map for students. There were, again, two or three contentious board meetings 
where consensus could not be reached on the mission, the goal, the highest priorities, much less the facts that supported that. There was no coverage. There was no one in the room while that was going on. On the day that the board went into a retreat to talk about this, our newspaper of record carried a story about the shortage of classroom aides, um, which is a situation that they linked to pay, without mentioning that the classroom aides are in contract talks, which I think we all agree that the classroom aides should make more money, but this is nonetheless a piece of important context. No discussion of the district's use of the aides. Why do we have so many? Who are they serving? Does anybody remember that a few years ago there was an audit done in which it was revealed that special education students often spend more than 50% of their days with a classroom aide who may or may not actually have a degree or the academic preparation to help them with their academic material? Nobody was in the room. So the biggest frontline problem here is the lack of basic watchdog function. I have a friend in New Orleans who does nothing but make sure that meetings are properly noticed, that what's talked about at the meeting was on the agenda, that the contracts that are attached to the agenda aren't sweetheart deals for somebody's friend, and that when the board meets in public, it's evident that they were not in a back room actually conducting business, which in New Orleans they frequently do. My counterpart in Dallas used to request the um, accounts payable and accounts receivable every month, like clockwork. She had a standing public records request, fed it into a spreadsheet, and found all kinds of mismanagement, all kinds of chicanery, all kinds of crazy credit card spending. The board loved her because it's how they figured out what staff was lying about. So whenever her public records request got fought, they were behind her. So this is a void, right? And it's a problematic void. Your tax dollars are being spent to serve or not serve your children, or, in my opinion, to serve some of your children in a much better fashion than some of our other children. Into this void, we've got fake news. You guys are getting your information, and I'm sorry. This is not a right-wing problem. This is not a flyover country problem. It's not a Montana problem. It's an us problem. We're getting our news from fake Facebook. We're getting our news from blogs, some of which are very valuable, some of which are very well done, but they're not news. You are increasingly seeing things that confirm your bias, and that's the truth. You probably enjoy that. It probably inflames your passions. You probably trade it around because, dang it, I agree with this. A certain amount of that is fine, but you just aren't consuming news about public education in this community at this moment in time. 50% of you can't distinguish opinion from fact on social media. 50% of all Americans cannot tell whether they are looking at a writer's opinion or a deeply researched journalistic report. Our media literacy rates, and I'm delighted to be ranting about this in front of a group of teachers, um, our media literacy rates are terrible. And this is, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. This is maybe the last five, eight years. Um, does the writer tell you that it's their opinion? Or are they asserting their opinion as fact? 
Do you check that when you open something up and read it? Is the opinion backed by evidence? What are the sources? Are they sorting, citing research? Do they quote the person who made the assertion? Do they give you some idea of what the counter-argument is? Is it a fair idea of what the counter-argument is? Or is that opinion just linked back to a whole habit trail of other opinions? I would say increasingly it's the latter. So uh, Washington DC last year had a graduation rate scandal. And uh, briefly put, they had a public school that supposedly was sending 100% of its graduates to college. And um, turned out that 50% of those graduates missed three months or more of school. There's no way they could have been passing their courses. The public radio affiliate there wrote a story about it. There was an audit. There's a board shakeup. It's going to matter in the mayoral election because they have mayoral control. That matters, right? That matters. What are those kids with those diplomas going to do after high school? Closer to home, I've ranted several times publicly about North High's miraculous graduation rate. And you know, I know that the tests aren't the predictor of everything, but last year's graduating cohort, seven, seven kids, seven period, not 7%, passed the 10th grade reading class, reading test, and then the next year, 4% of the same cohort passed math. We know that Minnesota has set a very high bar for consistent attendance, much higher than Washington, D.C., but we also now, this year, know that 47% of that cohort did not meet that bar. 47% of those kids didn't have consistent attendance. This is all fodder for debate, but my point is nobody's asking these questions. Nobody challenged the numbers when they came out this year. Nobody analyzed them. Nobody manipulated them. Silence. So uh, my asks for you, one, think about your confirmation bias. Just take note of it as you're going through your feeds and your other things. Two, if you teach or parent, think about media literacy as you do it. Are you teaching your students and your children how to evaluate the sources of information you're putting in front of them? Can they ask their own critical questions? Democracy depends on that. Complain. If I had a nickel for every complaint I've gotten about our legacy media, I'd be in Barbados and not here. You need to make your opinions about the paucity of coverage known to our legacy media. You need to write them, you need to call them, you need to tweet at them, you need to tell them what they're not covering, and you need to tell them why it matters. And I, it sounds crazy, but I bet you they don't know. I bet you they think that you are interested in new gymnasiums, football tournaments, etc. Because they have a 20-year-old understanding of the beat. Finally, I would like you to find a source of non-local news. Because as I travel, there are a lot of communities where things are going right. And we still have a 30 or 40-year-old idea of our Minnesota exceptionalism and how good we are compared to the rest of the country. And it is just not true. But if we're not getting news about our schools in our city, we're not getting news about schools that are succeeding in other parts of the country. 
I will circulate next week in the packet that Achieve Minneapolis sends out some suggestions. You could subscribe to the newsletter for one of these organizations, one of the national nonprofits. Just look at it once a week. You might, might rock your world. So when this tweet went out, the Capital Gazette newsroom was being um, ringed with crime scene tape. And the staff went out into the parking lot and set up shop in the back end of a pickup truck. Because we are putting out a damn paper tomorrow. Um, reporters from other cities have been volunteering to take shifts to fill open jobs. We're here to do the work. We care. We're your neighbors. We're your representatives. We're your fourth estate, and we need you. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos or listen to audio podcasts, visit AchieveMPLS.org.